This is the Janet Killeen Books Podcast. I'm reading from my collection of short stories, There is a Season. This story is called Miss Browning. She had not realised that they were afraid of her. She had not realised. I have come to see you because my daughter is afraid to come to school. Her sight cleared and she saw the woman. Late thirties, perhaps. Bright blue, short-sighted eyes behind the tortoise-shell glasses. Carefully gloved hands gripping the handbag which she had rested on the desk between them. Such a fierceness under the politely spoken words, but so right, Miss Browning acknowledged, that the young should be protected in these days following terrible upheaval. In seeing the mother clearly, she also saw herself, as if a mirror had been held up to her, tired and grey, she recognised, with a greyness of austerity clothing and ageing at fifty, but also a greyness of spirit and that scar along the left brow and temple, puckering the corner of the eye and still red and blotched, perhaps what was to her a dreary familiarity to them was very frightening, very aloof. I had not realised, she said aloud, of course I do not want her to be frightened, nor any of my pupils. For a moment, She felt the desk shake under her hands. I am grateful to you for coming. I must think of ways to encourage her. These first years are so vital to our children. Long after the woman had gone, she surveyed the classroom and saw how conscientious and yet how lifeless it was. Around the walls, pictures and colour, as much as could be managed in these times. Alphabets and numbers. Pictures of farm animals and tractors to teach the letters. So unreal, she thought suddenly, for these town children. Forty children's desks in careful rows, with pencils and wax crayons available, paints at the sink for Friday afternoon. The display of their work with careful stars and grave, kind comments. Very good, Lillian. You have tried very hard. This is a very pleasing piece of work, Peter. Their books piled neatly for her marking. The empty aquarium in the corner, awaiting the frog spawn of the spring. The display of last year's bird's eggs. The crumbling autumn leaves. Some seashells. All of them labelled carefully. Where had it gone, she asked herself. The energy almost amounting to a passion with which she had begun teaching. As she got up from her seat, having marked her books and set all in order on her desk for tomorrow morning, she felt the continued unsteadiness of her body, as though some seismic quaver had shaken her whole being. She found safety in routine, the bus to her lodgings, the light supper, cocoa drunk carefully whilst listening to the home service. She dreaded not sleeping, but fell into sleep as though drugged, 
surfacing only with the alarm at quarter to seven, and dredging up with her fragments of dreams like seaweed. The day began. The children, good morning children, good morning Miss Browning, went in orderly lines to assembly and sang, Glad that I live am I, that the sky is blue. She moved through the chanting of tables and the reading together and set them to writing a story, all the time sensing that there was a weakness in her body that surely must be communicating itself to these children through her voice, which sounded thin and distant to her. Suddenly there was a lurch beneath her feet, and it seemed to her as if all the desks were rising, not together, but as though a great swell of water was rippling through the classroom, dark, unfathomable water which might drown them all. Her chest tightened as though crushed in a vice, and she knew that she could barely breathe. All around her, the familiar objects of the room and the children whose names she had been at such pains to learn, distorted, growing larger and smaller in waves. Her feet groped for the stability of the floorboards. Her hands grasped the desk. Children, I want you to carry on with the colouring of your story while I see Miss Bentley next door for a moment. She saw their surprise and glee at being left even for a moment as she left the room. She leaned, gasping, against the wall outside. It was many days before she could even put words to the experience, the panic, the sense of complete collapse that had overtaken her. Her colleagues were bewildered but kind, her doctor calm and reassuring, her landlady prepared to take some care of her while she rested. It was, she knew, her own journey that must be travelled, or perhaps remembering the overwhelming waves, not hers, but his. She had met him on Tower Bridge. As she allowed her mind to begin its voyage, she remembered the feel of the balustrade, the strength of stone and iron, and below, the deep water brown as an otter's pelt, muscular with current. Such ancient waters, she had said in her mind, feeling the river's timelessness that would outlast even this century of cataclysm. Yes, said a voice beside her, so old, so powerful. They will outlast even this. She turned I am sorry I startled you, he said, offering a hand and sweeping off his peak cap. I heard you say, such ancient waters, and I felt I knew you. She gave her hand, looking up a little into the face of a man some ten years younger than herself. Grey eyes, a kind and slightly tip-tilted mouth, brown hair, over the bridge of his nose, two vertical lines as though already under great strain. His naval uniform was familiar to her, remembering her brother all those years ago, and she saw the gold bands of a lieutenant on his sleeves. Would you like some tea, he asked, laughing. Then I can introduce myself properly. They had tea in some corner tea shop and walked together all that afternoon under the plane trees along the embankment. Peter Bardsley. She had not said his name for nearly ten years and never to anyone but herself. 
It was to him that she had told the details of the air raid eighteen months before, when her school was bombed. So many children had died. Small bodies taken from the wreckage of desks and chairs, walls and ceilings. Charts and papers swirling in some horrible dance above the settling dust. She had seized the two children who were at her desk reading to her and thrust them under the desk, covering them as best she could as the ceiling fell in. As they cleared the heap of beams and furniture from her classroom, she had emerged, the two children still held close, cold and shaking with shock and pain, but alive. Her head and scalp were ripped with a glancing blow, and the scar was still livid on her temple. He did a strange thing, the kind of thing that her brother might have done, but he had been older than her. He touched her face very gently. I am so sorry, he said. They spoke of her past, of the years of childhood before the First War, and of emerging at sixteen into a world where there was little prospect of marriage. So many young men gone. She described to him the endless casualty lists, and the blinds drawn in house after house, and the women wearing black. Her brother George, too, so loved and admired, who had joined the Navy as soon as he was old enough, and survived Jutland only to die in a minesweeper in early 1918. When it was all over, I thought, if we can reach the young, we can make a new world. At least let us do that, so that the children can have a future. So I became a teacher. And that has been your life? Yes, for twenty years. He told her of himself, of school and university, and of his life as a solicitor in a small town south of Croydon. I joined the Navy because I was in the university rowing club, he said, laughing and now I am due to go north to join my ship. I cannot tell you more than that. They met four times more, all the afternoons he could offer to her before he must embark. It was a strange, companionable time in which they never touched, save to shake hands at parting, and the one tender gesture to her face. They talked as old friends or as close brother and sister, and she knew it came as near as she could ever dream to repairing the loss of her brother and all the abandoned hopes of marriage in her twenties. I am married, he told her. My wife is expecting our first child, and she has gone to stay with her mother. Tomorrow I will go to visit them for three days and then join my ship. He had not hidden this from her and his picture of their lives in Surrey was one of a happy and comfortable marriage, and of their delight at the coming baby. Thank you, he said, turning to look out again over the river. This time has saved me from myself, and all the uncomfortable thoughts that come when you are least defended. I was an only child, and confiding in anyone was unknown to me before I met my wife, and now I have shared with you also. I cannot tell her, not now, the anxiety I feel about the future. I fear the test of courage that may be asked of me. She realised then, as she had instinctively done since they first met, that he was allowing her to overhear his thinking, and that she had only to be still. 
Will you allow me to write to you? he asked suddenly. It may be little more than a scribbled note, but I need to feel that I can stay connected to you. And will you take this for me? It is my family ring, not my wedding ring, and I rarely wear it. It will be safe with you, and when I return, I will ask for it back. He then said, very calmly, And if I do not return, please keep it. I said that I thought I knew you when we very first met, and that is the truth. She answered gravely, Yes, I will keep it for you, and yes, it is the truth. She had one letter, posted to her, she guessed, from Scarpa Flow. It carried warmth and gave her a vivid sketch of the hours of duty, the grey light of morning, the rising swell of the seas in the Pentland Firth, then nothing. She kept the letter and the ring safely, folding them together in her bureau and folding away within herself both the memory of happiness and the dread of his ending. Folded and hidden until now, until that day had broken upon her. She knew as she emerged from collapse that what had happened was a drowning of the mind, a participation with him in the deep gulping water, the green black seas of the Atlantic convoys that overwhelmed insignificant ships and all their helpless crews in the torrent of freezing waters. Such ancient water, cruel and heedless of man and all his yearnings. Her brother, too, swept into huge and devouring waves. Even now, as she dared to explore her own grief, she felt the floor tilt beneath her, and the waters rise in her mind. After many days, she returned to her classroom. This at least she understood, and could address with a quickening of her own revived emotions. The motivation to reach a new generation of children in the aftermath of war was just as valid as it had been thirty years before, and she knew herself to be both more sensitive and more creative than she perhaps had ever been. She felt a gratitude to him, that a connection had not been lost, despite all the fathoms of water that had drowned him. She sensed an urgency, an obligation to him, to trace a little of his story. She had a small legacy, enough to free her to travel if she so desired, and there had been a child. She could not imagine how to make contact, but she could at least try for his sake to discover whether the child had survived the war. That Easter she took the railway train north to Inverness, and then to Wick and caught the ferry to Kirkwall. Pitching and rolling in the boat, she smiled wryly at the memory of his description of seasickness overtaking the most hardy of seamen. The currents clash in the Firth from east and west of the Orkney Islands, and she saw the waves rear up grey moving towers of water through which the boat butted and boxed its way to harbour. But it was a gentle Easter after that journey, and she took delight in the green and rounded countryside, the strong, abrupt cliffs and stacks facing the stern Atlantic, 
and the endless bird life wheeling and screaming over the cliffs and sea. She stayed in a farmhouse overlooking the great harbourage of Scarpa Flow and sensed its dark depths and the thousands of men who had been stationed there. Grief softened, and she knew she had attended them as far as she could go, Peter and her brother, both beneath the deep water of those northern seas. Returning, she had a few days left of holiday in which to prepare for school, but the coming weekend would be sufficient for that. At least she could begin to make inquiries for his child. She felt anxious. The urgency stayed with her, however, even though her mind said that this was folly, and even her most oblique inquiries could be so easily misunderstood. Nonetheless, she caught the train to Selsden and walked down the high street, looking, she realised, for the solicitors. Someone there might know of the family, would remember Peter working there before the war. Oh, yes, yes, indeed, said the secretary at the desk in the outer office. A pleasant, competent woman, much of her own age. I worked for Mr. Bartley. He was a very kind man. He was so very sorry when the news of his loss at sea came through, and poor Mrs. Bardsley so nearly lost the baby. But she survived, a, a little girl, and they lived here, although I think Mrs. Bardsley often thought of going to stay with her mother in those early months, but her mother died. It was a tragedy that she was unable to do so. A V-1 took the house, and Mrs. Bardsley was there with the child at the time. She twisted her hands together and said, So many helpless lives, so very, very terrible. Yes, said Miss Browning, recognising and grateful for the woman's genuine sadness. And the child, did she escape? Yes, she did, but... Where she is now, I, I don't know. Children were taken in by neighbours, and then so many of them ended up in orphanages and not necessarily nearby. I'm so sorry that I cannot help you. The matron of the home was cautious in her greeting. So many of our children dream of visitors. You say that you knew the father during the war, but lost all contact. The mother died very tragically in the last year of the war. The little girl would barely remember her life before coming here. She was moved around in those early months. It is so difficult to get the authorities to realise that these children need to be settled as soon as possible. The blend of efficiency and compassion was evident in her tone. Now, do you want to meet the child? I can send for her and she can meet you in my office. If you wish to take her out, we can, of course, arrange that. The door opened, and a girl of nine or ten came in, carefully carrying herself upright. Excuse me, you sent for me, please, matron. Come in, Sylvia. This lady is Miss Browning, and she has come to visit you. She saw a girl whose eyes and mouth echoed her father's. Hello, Sylvia, she said gently. A long time ago I knew your father. I hope it might be possible to visit you. I am so sorry 
It has taken all this time for me to find you. You have been listening to Miss Browning. From the book There Is a Season. Read by the author Janet Killeen. And produced by Duncan P.B. For more stories, please subscribe on iTunes or from wherever you get your podcasts.